And now we have our special guest that we've been telling you about in the studio. Well, we just told them that we've got an exciting special guest, so it's a surprise <laughs> to the listeners. <laughs> but we have Leonie Pihama in the studio, who is an associate professor at the University of Waikato and director of Te Kotahi, uh, Kotahi Research Institute, and also keynote speaker at this year's Space, Race and Bodies Conference. So welcome, Leonie. Mm, kia ora. It's, um, it's lovely to be here. It's lovely to be on student radio. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, my my daughter's in working in student radio, so it's really great to have some time here and to be here in Otago. Um, you know, for the conference is really, you know, I'm quite honoured to have been invited down after having a look at the kinds of people you've had, you know, down here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, it's good. Cool. Yeah, the Space Race Bodies Conference is quite special. Um, I, I was at the one two years ago, right after I moved here, and it turned out at the end we sort of realized it was the probably the largest gathering of prison abolitionists in the Southern Hemisphere, um, and lots of people talking about really it was just such interesting perspectives on so many important issues. Um, but that feeling, too, it feels really precious as an academic to occupy a space with so many artists and activists as well. Mm. I feel like part of the curation of this conference is it has that ethos to it. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I had a look and you know, you've had people like Emmy Larkety here and a whole range of really strong, kind of upcoming, you know, young activists mm. and uh, with a very strong voice around issues of incarceration and Abolition, and you know, so it's um, it seems to have a really kind of cross-disciplinary feel about it that gives it a bit of energy, which I'm I'm really looking forward to kind of seeing how that plays out. Bit of energy, bit of tension, <laughs> bit of tension, I'm sure. But you know, that's you, you know, we live in a society that is full of dilemmas, you know, mm. and um, the one of the you know part of the title is walls. So you know, what's the relationship in terms of immigration and refugees and uh, you know the construction of borders and walls and what do they mean uh, you know and I'm really interested in that both in terms of the kind of physical construction but also the the way in which our, mind, our thinking you know is framed uh, and boarded in particular ways you know both within the academy and uh, without the academy. Mm, absolutely. It's quite visible, I think, in the States at the moment. Yep, so it is. Um, I think it's more obvious, actually, on Turtle Island, what they call America. Yeah. Um, you know, with, with what's happening there in terms of the debate around the construction of the, the southern border, you know, mm. uh, wall, uh, in terms of across Mexico. And, and what we don't hear, um, you know, hear often is the kind of complexities uh, of that border, so native people would say, "Well, actually, uh, we don't cross the border; the border crosses us." Mm. And so that raises a whole range of issues around colonialism, the way in which uh, America and the USA, as a very powerful, you, you know, colonial force, has reconstructed geography mm. in terms of the island and many of the states now that they want to, in commas, protect. Uh, we're actually originally a part of South America and a part of Mexico. So the whole redrawing of boundaries and the reconstruction of geography and then building a wall to keep people out mm. and actually keep people out whose land it originally was. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you know, raises a whole lot of complexities. I think, you know, one of the things we don't get here in Aotearoa is really good news around that. We get very middle of the road kind of conservative um, and we don't get the in-depth kind of discussions that we need to really have mm. um, Yeah, around that issue. So Because it's much more uh, than a, a wall building issue, you know. It's like a whole lot of complex ways in which the notion of the state has been built. Mm. Uh, who gets to do that and who gets to control that? Mm. Absolutely. Are you familiar with Gloria Anzaldúa on any of her work? Mm. So in her 1987 book, Borderlands La Frontera, in the very first pages she says, the Mexican-American border is una herida abierta, which translates to an open wound, where the first world grates against the third and bleeds, and before it can scab over, it hemorrhages again, the Mm. lifeblood of two cultures merging together to form 
a third culture, a border culture. And so she's talking about the generativity of these mm. kinds of borderland in between spaces, but she's prefacing it with the wound of it. And so much of her writing hinges on um, that looking at the body and locating the body as a site that has been um, trespassed against and that a wall has been built across and so you know we can think about it in terms of as you say the geography mm. of it but how that also translates onto individual people's bodies mixed race people's mm. bodies um, yeah I know this well. is not news to you but to our listeners they probably yeah, haven't read no. it <laughs> actually you know there's not many students of this generation that I know that actually read her work so it's really great mm. um have that kind of conversation and the whole construction of the, the idea of the wound you know because we're talking about kind of embodiment and emplacement and how they come together mm. you know and the way in which when land is rapeable then the people of that land are rapeable mm. and so that you know the kind of work that andrea smith does around you know colonial invasion is often um you know, it's very deeply embedded in the kind of invasion of the land and the invasion of Indigenous women's bodies. Mm. And so the way in which that plays out um, in terms of the kind of belief systems get, that get taken to lands as a part of a colonial understanding, uh, very Victorian chattel-based understandings of women, and, and, they, and they begin to play out in a whole range of ways um, through that kind of colonial experience. So I think the other thing is that, yeah, you know, a lot of... Um, indigenous and African American and feminist and radical writers talk a lot about the notion of the wound mm -hmm. and so um, you know uh, Bonnie Duran and Eduardo Duran who have been writing in kind of indigenous psychology for a long time they talk very much about the notion of the soul wound and so with the uh, what historical trauma events do is that they kind of they are, they are a invasion of the body Mm. of all kinds of bodies and so if Papa Tunuku is Earth Mother then it stands to reason that actually all of those that come of that Earth Mother are then able to be wounded and mm. open for wounding um, and the notion of the soul wound in their conversation, in their discussion really is about the intergenerational impact of that so when you have an impact that is of an entire people uh, and a kind of cumulative impact of trauma of entire groups of people that gets passed down intergenerationally as a part of a kind of soul wound or a, I guess in Māori terms we talk about it in terms of the the way in which our ancestral memory is passed uh, and, and I, you know in my view this is actually applicable to all people um, but I think that as Indigenous people we often have a language to, to speak so we can talk about the way in which it's carried through whakapapa you know, we can talk about it in that way. But I think the, the idea of a kind of ancestral wound is a very deep one, and they would also relate that to an earth wounding. So if you wound the, if you wound the earth, you wound the people of the earth. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, I think all of that work is really, actually really vital at the moment when we're thinking about what's going on in the world and um, what's happening with, you know, children at the border Mm. Um, in the States and the way in which that really takes us back to what happened with residential schools for Native people where children were removed. So the removal of children is really a part of a state control mechanism mm. and when you look at definitions of genocide, one of the key parts of a definition of genocide is actually the removal of children mm. because it's a denial of an ability to have a future. So if people can't have a future um, so you're looking at notions of kind of genocidal and ethnocidal uh, operations that the state is imposing. So I think we need, and this country, you, you know, this government needs to actively speak out against it. There's far too much it's silence very quiet, around it. quiet, hasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we know what silence does when, you know, oppressive forces do this to people. Right. Uh, it, it enables them to gather more momentum and to go unchallenged and you know we've got many many examples of the world not speaking out um, you know and Nazi Germany is a clear example and uh, what happened in terms of the Holocaust is you know as an example of how when people of other lands do not speak out mm. and do not take action against uh, you know those really strong 
fascist right-wing movements and that is actually what we are seeing yeah in the states now yes it is yeah. a line has been very clearly crossed i think in the last couple of weeks such that any last shreds of denial are are dead mm. at this point like it, it has become a fascist state um the likeness of trump to hitler is at this point just mm undeniable and there's a certain shock that accompanies that because I, I live overseas and I live here now for the last few years and I, I'm sort of at a loss of what to do but I'm not sure I would have any better idea if I was there either mm. um, so it's quite a shock to the system and there's that sense too um, of the constant state of emergency and the sense of having been systematically desensitized and overwhelmed by you know, issue after issue, crisis after crisis, mm. um, transgression after transgression, which is very similar to how abusers, mm. you know, kind mm. of insinuate um, and and insidiously develop these dynamics over time. It's. I want to loop really quickly back to something that you're talking about in terms of um, indigenous people and Maori having language for ancestral trauma, mm -hmm. because now, surprise, surprise. Um, biology is sort of catching up to yeah. something that um, that indigenous people have known for a long time, which mm. is that trauma lives in bodies and passes through generations. Mm -hmm. Now they call it epigenetics, and they say, yeah. "Look how interesting we can see these changes in the DNA." Like, what are your thoughts on on that and the ways in which um, various indigenous perspectives that account for this get written out of that? that emerging new study. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it is. Epigenetics is gradually catching up and, um, <clears throat> you know, probably worthwhile for students here at the med you know, medical school to kind of think about mm. becoming more conversant with Indigenous thinking around trauma and around wounding and the way in which it is, um, you know, embodied uh, intergenerationally. And I think, you know, I'm glad that science is catching up. What the thing is is that you know the way that knowledge is embedded in power, indigenous knowledge has been marginalised for many, many generations, and and people have been saying this for a very long time, that we have ancestral memory that comes through what we would call the either tangata, which is the either tangata is like the fundamental essence of who you are, and some people like to kind of define that as, as genetics or DNA, but it's actually more than that. Mm. It's about the, the life force of who you are. Mm. So it's not just a chemical makeup, like, and, uh, you know, it's not just DNA. Uh, it's much more than that. It has a spiritual element and it has a memory uh, that's a part of it. And so, you know, in the marginalization of indigenous knowledges, um, you get this kind of denial for many, many years until somehow the real way of discovery through science catches mm. up and then it has some legitimacy um, but even then epigenetics is still about the genetic makeup, it's still about the DNA makeup, mm. it does not have a sense of spirituality or the way in which our wairua spiritually carries certain memories mm. and so it's, it's kind of there but not quite, not quite there uh, and I think that if we really want to really delve deeply into thinking about healing, particularly in this country, then we need to stop putting all of our, you know, faith in a Western science model. Mm. Uh, because if Western science was going to be healing these things, we'd actually see, you know, some cures happening already. Mm. I mean, it's, it's one part of the story, but it's not the only story. Mm -hmm. And I guess we've had a story here that's been denied, or many stories here that have been denied for a very long time, um, that have a strong validity and legitimacy in them, um, and really backed by very strong, um, you know, knowledge forms that go back generations. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it's a, a little bit heartbreaking because when I think about like epigenetics and things like that, I'm like, cool, power to you, keep going with that. But it's a small part of the picture, and. I'm a little skeptical in terms of how much those sorts of studies lend themselves to being um, in the interest of pharmaceutical companies mm. or some kind of monetized <clears throat> establishment and yeah. not really about healing in the deeper, more um, comprehensive sense of the word.
Well, I think, you know, this, uh, and that's probably why they'll never go into a spiritual idea or thinking about uh, a broader way of thinking about you know our fundamental makeup is not just being about genetics and not just being about chemical and not just being about DNA because the sciences themselves are very reductionist mm. and so uh, you know so there is often a drive uh, which has an economic imperative and you see that in funding in this country for for research yeah you know that a lot of a lot of what's funded through the crown crown particularly through MB really is meant to show some kind of economic imperative or impact. And that's a part of the kind of neoliberal frame we've been in since the 1980s. Um, right. I think the other side of the, um, the way in which, you know, that kind of reductionist positive science works is that it makes it all about the individual. And so therefore it removes the context of society. And so... Mm. And then there's no accountability. So there's no accountability, there's no connection to uh, social justice, to racism, to homophobia, to transphobia, all of those things that actually impact on a person's well-being. Mm. So it can never be allowed to be, again, reduced only to biology or only to genetics. Yeah. I think I've been thinking a lot lately about how... um, we put the onus of responsibility on individuals to bear the burdens of um, living within these oppressive structures. So an example of that would be stress medicine and the idea that an individual should be, you know, taking responsibility to mitigate their stress levels and eat right and do this and do that and look after their own health Mm -hmm. when the reality is, like, in an industrial capitalist, neoliberal capitalist context, like, who's who's actually living without stress? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's social and it's political and it's economic and it's, you know, it has so much to do with um, with the world that we're living in and the zeitgeist that we're living in. And so I get really, uh, it's amazing because I listen for it now when I talk to my peers about what's alive for them in their lives. And um, time and again, there's there's just this really tacit acceptance that there's something personally wrong with them mm-hmm. or it's their own personal struggle. And this kind of... F- Reluct, it doesn't even cross their mind to mm-hmm. to source these struggles in a larger body. Mm. <sighs> well, I think you know we have to have um, you know an awareness of of both agency and structure simultaneously. Yeah. Uh, so they're not disconnected, mm-hmm. and so um, yeah, we can talk about. <coughs> So things like, you know, racism in this country, the impact of racism and the impact of, you know, structural and institutional racism on families, and then people will then reduce it down to, well, are they a good parent? Mm. Yeah. And yet we know there's this entire system that actually operates that is all, all constantly defining that and redefining what that looks like Yeah. Uh, from a particular standpoint. Uh, and so, y- you know, it's... It's about always having the awareness of the two, like where do I fit in uh, in relationship as as a human being in relationship to the structures that I have? Where do I fit in in, in a relational context to my whanau and mm. to uh, the generations before and the generations to come? Um, so it's a, I think one of the things we try to encourage people is to really think about in more relational ways in terms of... Um, their lives. That's not to say that as individuals we can't make changes. We know we can. But there are certain things structurally that if we don't change them as well, then the stress will just re reignite in your life. So if mm. you're dealing with racism, you can go out feeling very confident in yourself and and with a view that it doesn't actually matter what Bob Jones might say about <laughs> us. We don't give a fuck, you know, we're just gonna go and live our lives. But actually then we re- then we realise that actually the structures around and that he's very embedded in and a part of maintaining and reproducing always have this mechanism by which to kind of reimpose themselves in your life and so constantly being reflective hmm. um, and it's something we say that well I'm working with the students that we work with particularly at graduate level um, as you know a you cannot have an analysis that is not 
both cultural and structural at the same time that does not account for what is happening in the systems and also for your agency in relation to those systems but it always has to be in relationship Mm. Mm. yeah well said Mm. I want to get a little bit into some of the recent new stuff but I'm thinking maybe we should take a quick break get some tunes up and uh, to our listeners stay tuned we'll be back um, in just a moment you're listening to your friendly neighborhood feminist on Radio 191 FM Welcome back to your Friendly Neighborhood uh, Feminist on Radio 1. Yeah, and we are joined in the studio by Leonie Pihana, and we are going to talk a little bit now about Bob Jones. Mm. Old friend Bob Jones. (laughs) So, Leonie, you were caught up in his his latest pursuit. He's taking legal action, potentially. They've received letters because of a tweet. Mm. Well, it, it started with uh, Renee Mahi's petition last year mm-hmm. um, to after his um, y- you know his article with the NBR that went up uh, around Waitangi Days. It was a very demeaning, racist piece of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she lodged the she put out a petition on um, online and calling for the removal of his knighthood, and so clearly that. Um, impacted uh, on him and he uh, threatened quite early on to sue her for defamation. Um, interestingly, you know, in this next round of activity, the petition's got up to nearly 75,000 now. It's about 69,000 when she first got uh, the, you know, the threat from him. And so that's been filed now and so he is actually suing for defamation uh, mm-hmm. against Renee, um, who's, you know, a young woman, filmmaker, um, really, she was one of the eight uh, Māori women in the film Wadu, who, who had a short story mm. in that. So she's an emerging filmmaker. Um, and does really good work. And I, you know, I thought it was very courageous of her. And so when she took the petition to Parliament, uh, she was supported by uh, Professor Po Temera, who uh, is at the University of Waikato. Um, and so I began to blog about it, you know, just to give some... Some solidarity, really. Mm. Um, and so I did a couple of blogs around the petition and around the article that he'd had on the NBR, which only was up for, I think, a day before they took it down, um, and really kind of questioned his uh, defence that it was satire. Yeah. And, and other academics like Paul Moon, who also kind of backed up that position. Uh, and really just did a... Um, so I have a blog, Cope of Amadi, uh, online, it's just under my name, and I use it really just to kind of air some other ways of thinking about issues. Mm. Um, so uh, then, when uh, you know, when he put the formal proceedings into, or his lawyer did into court, I just I did a tweet, and in the tweet, I was really advocating for people to go back and those who hadn't signed the petition to try and you know, to add to the position and let's try and get it to 75,000 to support her. Mm. Um, And uh, so I put the, you know, it was a petition about racist Bob Jones. And so it's really just on that tweet uh, that the the initial letter I got from his lawyers, which is about about three or four weeks ago now, Mm. um, asking for me to, uh, you know, retract it and apologise in the same media to which I had defamed, supposedly defamed him. So, yeah, it's been an interesting process. I, I, um, so when that first came, I kind of sat on it for a day or two. I do tend to kind of think things through, even though people think I'm a little bit kind of, you know, fire off pretty quickly. I do actually think it through, and I, so I sat with that for a, um, a little while, and then started to think about, um, you know, what they call those slap. Uh, cases in the states particularly where mm. people use st- strategic litigation so it's strategic litigation against public participation so it's what corporates often do to mm. uh, to stop movements or stop activists from uh, you know from challenging their work so a lot of um, you know people in, in oil industries and fracking a lot of the big corporates will use these slap 
processes to it's, silence people. I was going to say, it yeah. sounds like a silencing tactic. To yeah. silence people. Uh, and so I kind of went on, I was, I was thinking about those and then, you know, just really came to the view that, and after talking to a number of close friends, activist friends, decided that, well, there's only, you know, there's only two things you can do. One, you can either just sit with it and be silent and then see what they do. Well, actually, there's three things. The other one you can do is that you can retract and apologise. And the other one you can do is that you can go as public as, as you possibly can. And so I chose the third one because mm. I'm much better at that than I Got to know your strengths. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, um, th- well, the retract and apologise was never going to happen. So, uh, and and the being silent is, you know, um, yeah, something I might have done 25 years ago, but I'm certainly not going to do now in my life. And I and I really encourage people not to uh, be silent around. Uh, silence is a very you know, as a way that continues the kind of perpetuation of all kinds of violence, yeah. uh, bullying, physical violence, sexual violence, um, you know, a whole range of things. And we see through movements like Me Too and other movements that actually voice is really important. Yeah. Um, and partly too, I want to model that, you know, within um, both within the academic area that I work in, but also for my own for my own people and for my own children, you mm. know, that mm. that to sit silently and just take what I believe to be bullying is not yeah. acceptable. So um, I want to echo yeah. that bullying yeah. comment, like, because I was watching um, one of the interviews you'd given about this and talking about how he tried to, you know, chalk it up to satire. And I'm, I'm just kidding. Yeah. And that's such a bullying tactic mm. to to hurt someone. Mm. Um, or in this case, a whole people, <laughs> yeah. and then say, well, can't you take a joke? Because yeah. it actually puts the responsibility on the people who've been hurt for what? Like, it's like gaslighting. I was like, just going to say, it's you, a form of gaslighting. You know, yeah. it's it's so sick, it's so twisted, but it's like, it's classic. Mm. It's it's absolutely classic. So, yeah, let's <laughs> stick with bullying. Yeah, and it, it, is, it is a form of gaslighting. It is about a denial of people's experience. Mm. Um, and mm. and making it your fault. Yeah. 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 And now you're apparently, in his eyes, your responsibility to make right. <coughs> which is just ridiculous and unacceptable. Um, if, 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 if two people are having a conversation and someone says something and someone goes, ouch, hey, that's not okay, um, the, the, the response, the ethical response is not, Oh well, you just made me feel awkward. Now you have to yeah. say right. sorry yeah. for saying, "Ouch, that's not okay." Like what? You know, I thought that actually I'd written a blog uh, prior to the tweet, and I thought the blog was kind of more um, telling, I guess, in terms of my view, because I, I I wrote a blog around the kind of narcissistic behaviour that I saw happening in terms of how he was approaching Renee. And, and, you know, if I was going to, um, y- you know, I thought if I was going to be threatened for anything, it would be more likely to be that blog than actually using the term racist in one tweet. One tweet, yeah. And so, um, but I think the whole thing around the denial of people's experience is a very oppressive way of being. And mm. and whether it's an individual or whether it's whole groups of people, whether it's women or whether it's Māori or whether it's specific people or... Um, you know, is an ongoing way of maintaining the existing power relationships that exist in this country and in other countries. So it's nothing new that, that, that you know, it's just a joke. Mm. Um, you know, I think people will hear that a lot in their daily lives. Mm. Uh, you know, can't you so, take a joke? Yeah. yeah, can't you take a joke? You're too sensitive, yeah, and then it becomes about the person. Yeah, yeah totally. Uh, so well, how did you feel about the response? So I know on Twitter... Bob Jones is a racist was trending. <laughs> it was trending, yeah. Yeah. And Bob Jones is a movie was trending too, which was really kind of oh. hilarious. I, I missed that one. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So it's where people change the movie names. Ah, yeah. oh, yeah. right. Okay. A line. Okay. And so, yeah, they both trended on the same night. And um, I wasn't really surprised. You know, I thought that 75,000 people signed a petition and so it's highly likely that a number of them are on Twitter 
yep. <laughs> and, and following, you know, some of those, ha- or, you know, we'll see some of those hashtags. But I think it's a real indication that, um, you know, there is a movement of, uh, and a growing movement uh, where this is not acceptable. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the international movements have, have helped with that. Um, you know, for me, uh, movements like Idol No More, which is a very big Canadian movement in terms of sovereignty movement, I mm. think Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. I think Me Too, the Women's March, um, you know, I think that they are movements that have been quite instrumental in, in giving people a, you know, a sense of power in their lives collectively and individually to stand up. Mm. Um, you know, I know that this week is the beginning of a um, series coming out around you know prominent women that have experienced sexual violence, mm. and so you know Madame Davis, who's that, a good yeah. friend, who piece came out the other day, yeah. um, and you know it kind of that kind of leveraged off the woman that walked out of Parliament as a part of the kind of Me Too statement, yeah. uh, the woman that were parliamentarians and ministers who walked out of Parliament as a statement around sexual violence, um, you know. So I think that. We do need to be to having that more public, you know, discussion and having more uh, kind of a more of an awareness again around around those issues. I mean, sexual violence is an area that I've been working in. Uh, in terms of a researcher, I'm a researcher, but I work with a lot of you know um, healers and counsellors and practitioners uh, in that area and. You know, what we see is that, that kind of intergenerational way in which gendered politics have played out in this country for, you know, 200 years mm. uh, has had a serious, serious impact in terms of the level of family violence and sexual violence that we experience um, and the high proportion of Māori that are in that and those numbers. Mm. Um, mm. And that, you know, issues of disposition and... Uh, being treated as property, uh, you know, they all are a part of that wider, the wider construction of this idea, as we said earlier, of of women's bodies as rapeable. Mm. So I think I'm, I'm, I was really taken by the fact that this group of women are going to be sharing their stories, and and I saw Madame the other day just mm. to you know really affirm her. Uh, mm. And doing that mm. uh, as a Māori woman, and to you know talk very openly mm. uh, about her experience. Yeah, and I think her, her experience I think will resonate with a lot of people, which was the not wanting to tell family because you didn't want to hurt family. Yeah, mm. and I think yeah. that's so big. And it's yeah. you know often we always put the the blame on on victims. Why didn't you speak out? Why didn't you tell someone? But when yeah. you have all those sorts of things going on, that really makes an impossible situation. Yeah, well, often you know whether uh, whether it's family or people outside family. You know, there's always this kind of you know there's often this sense of well, the silence for one, uh, and then the kind of notion of you know what harm we might do, you know, by actually speaking about it. Absolutely. And I think that that you know Mars was a really uh, good example. I know there are other women that are going to be in that series as well. Um, yeah, it really is about saying, actually, you know, we do we do need to find other ways of being able to talk about this uh, that don't keep us silent and keep us sitting in that pain for such a long time. Mm. And, you know, and often that kind of level of pain is really, um, you know, it just... It can stop you from doing many, many things in your life. You know, it's debilitating for many. And that's what we see in the work that we've been doing around... So we're really trying to focus on some healing pathways at the moment. So how can we reconstitute kind of relationships in ways that are about healthy relationships? And one of the things we're trying to focus on uh, in terms of the family violence, sexual violence work that we've been doing is really about coming back to what constitutes a healthy relationship. Mm. or healthy relationships now whether they be intimate relationships or family relationships or friendship relationships how do we can reconstruct the ways in which we can be uh, individually and collectively with each other in ways that are healthy Mm. and actually start again in some ways and I'll talk a little bit about this tomorrow Um, is that really 
a lot of pain that's embedded in this country goes right back to the land wars and goes right back to relationships that have never uh, been healed, relationships with the land, relationships with each other. So I talk a little bit about the relationships between tangata whenua and manuhiri. So for me, if you if you are on this land and you've never been onto a pōwhiri, onto a marae, you've never really been fully bought, even if you were born here, you've never really been fully bought into a relationship with Māori people. Mm. And I think it's a huge loss because I think that enables people to keep uh, you know things Māori at a, at a distance because of not ever going into that formal ceremonial relationship with each other. Mm. Now, I'm talking about that because, I mean, for me, that's about forging really healthy relationships between Māori and Pākehā, but not just Pākehā, but anyone who comes to this land. The pōwhiri and that ceremonial process puts us in relationship with each other mm. in a healthy way, mm. in a healthy way. And so, you know, really embedded in that kind of cultural understanding is so how do we put each other, uh, how do we come into relationship with each other in healthy ways also as individuals um, and I think that we've got a whole history of telling us what relationships look like mm. that is really unhealthy mm-hmm. it's really gendered and it's very homophobic, it's very transphobic it's very racist, it's very classist mm. it's very much about a kind of heteronormative way of being that really has no place and uh, in, in thinking about healthy relationships, mm. you know, and so things like the colonial nuclear family is the, is an enabler of violence. Mm. It enables family violence because it removes you from other relationships that would have otherwise protected you. Mm. Mm. I really like that idea as well of looking about healthy relationships mm. because quite often, like when we look at the issue of sexual violence, it gets reduced down to an issue of consent. Right, and that really is a yeah. it's a really small piece of the puzzle. And I think that if you widen that out to healthy relationships, what's respectful, what's mutual, and things like that, that's a lot more productive than just being like, well, was there a yes or a no? You know, like yeah. imparting that legal yeah. concept there and missing all the rest of it. Yeah, and I think you know the the discussion around consent where it's necessary at times is also a reductionist conversation mm. to have. You know, because it does come down to a proof. Who, what you can prove or not prove yeah. and yet if we think about this in terms of transgressions and the way in which people you know within relationships transgress other people's um, well other people's well what we're talking about in terms of your tapu or your mana mm. uh, and that's what violence does um, and sexual violence uh, in terms of male to female sexual violence transgresses the whaditangata or the house of the people. So, you know, the, and which is a very tapu place, it's a very tapu space. Mm. So I think we have to think about it in much more complex ways. Um, but I do think that um, in, in this country, if we don't go back and really engage uh, more actively and critique and disrupt the kind of the domesticated nuclear family colonial gendered model mm. uh, then I don't think we're going to move much further along in terms of the kind of intervention of family violence and sexual violence because I think that model really re- reproduces the kinds of relationships that on the whole enable that kind of violence to happen Yeah, the whole intervention approach at the moment is very ambulance at the bottom of the cliff, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, and we have to take down those structures yeah, and that means thinking really deeply uh, ourselves about our own relationships mm-hmm. and how we think about relationships and how we think about being in relationship with people and what our roles are. And so in an intimate relationship, you know, context, the kind of, you know, that kind of heteronormative way of being and that nuclear way of being and uh, with a denial of any kind of other way of thinking about complex um and more open and more trusting and more respectful forms of relationships that, you know, people will talk about. Um, so polyamorous relationships and, you know, having multiple partners and, and those kinds of things, which, um, you know, have been in this world forever, mm. you know, forever. And we can go right back through Papa, and we have multiple relationships, intimate relationships. 
Um, but they're, they're, they're constructed in a, in a context of respect and in a context of openness and in a context of a mutual agreement. Mm. Uh, and so it's around, you know, so we do really need to rethink relationships as they currently are, you know, articulated, really. There's... um. Amen to yeah. that. Um, I'm co-authoring a paper at the moment with uh, Melanie Barish, who's in the sociology department here. And the data set that we've been working with is primarily um, queer and takatapui people talking about um, how they negotiate consent in a very kind of <laughs> verbose way, which has been really interesting to work with. And um, of that data set, we've kind of pulled out a number of people with uh, who either they or their partners have a history of sexual violence and have started to look it wasn't the initial point of mm. when she sat down to do the interviews but we've been coming through this data set and looking at how victims and survivors kind of um, re-establish sexual relationships after having experienced trauma and one of the things I'm arguing for in in my thesis and some of my work has to do with um, reclamation of the victim label um, and also and rejecting the idea that it's an internalized state of mind but is mm. actually um, a, a specific subject position that um, yeah um, that to borrow from my other supervisor Rebecca Stringer's work knows something the the knowing victim the victim who mm. knows and starting as I'm coming through this data set it's the kind of in the back of my mind that um, that our culture doesn't value the knowledge of victims and yet when you talk to people who have experienced forms of domestic or sexual or family violence and they tell their stories and they talk about what they what they know now because of that reality and the extremely creative sophisticated mm. intelligent and wise ways that they've learned to um, kind of integrate that, take it on board, and build alternatives that mm. work for them, that mm. keep them safe. There is a huge, um, I don't want to say mine, because I don't like mining, mm. but there's this huge wealth of um, information to be gleaned by people mm. from this kind of, mar you know, the victim is a marginalized group right. that that needs to be brought into the fore and centered again. So... Yeah, I'm I'm hearing what you're saying and I'm and I'm starting to like think outside of the limitations of of um my sort of western education and and my white identity and starting to think about some of the the bridges to be built in terms of starting to think about these these issues creatively and productively mm -hmm. and multiculturally because it it's it, it is pretty much a universal problem mm -hmm. and I believe with uh, my whole heart to some degree that the answers to it lie in um, in the wisdom of victims almost above just about anybody else well you know I think that we have um, I actually think we have all the answers available to us um, <clears throat> we just don't have we don't have a system that's willing to hear them, mm. and we don't have a, you know, a structural agencies or government that's willing to actually, you know, to take those answers that come from those communities, whether it be victims or whether it be, um, you know, Māori, whether it be Tukatapu, whoever it is. I think that a lot of the answers we need to some of the contemporary issues we're facing, we actually have them. Mm. We just don't have. Um, an openness to you know be able to implement the kinds of answers that we have. So if we look at things like the inquiry around sexual around state abuse, mm. so those who have been in you know state care, of which care is probably the worst term ever. Yeah, I was just going to yeah. say that <laughs> to use. You yeah, know. And inverted so, commas care. Yeah, and so you know, but it's still sits there as a kind of terminology but in the inquiry we're going to we will hear as a country a whole range of voices around what happened and a whole range of voices around what needs to happen but actually even in the build-up we've seen a lot of the survivor and in, in commas groups uh, and victims of state abuse 
actually already giving us a whole lot of answers yeah. around how we need to change things yeah. mm. and how uh, you know child youth and family because I'm not going to call them Oranga Tamariki because they're not they don't do well by our children mm. you know that ministry it doesn't deserve that title mm. yet mm. Um, but there's a lot of changes that advocates like Paul the Moyle and others have been saying who have been through that system and know that system need to happen and there's no willingness to implement those and so people like her are going to have to wait till the end of the inquiry uh, for some recommendations around what could happen when they're actually already giving us as mm. victims of state abuse um, you know the, a lot of the answers now we could actually be implementing change now mm. and so you know with child youth and family so recently you know the minister you know came out and said we want to reduce the number of children in care and the CEO of you know, of Sif said, yeah, yeah, we want to do that too. But actually last year in an interview on the Hui, she said, when she was asked, are you going to reduce the number of Māori children in care, given what we know now? She said, well, not necessarily. Mm. So <clears throat> we might have a new government, but we have the same bureaucracy, right? Yeah, I was just and, thinking and the, the fact same. that the CEO of Child, Youth and Families speaks volumes. <laughs> and it's the same one that's mm. been there. Mm. through all you know for many years so yeah you, you know we put a lot of faith in a change of government uh it, it, you know and the moving you know to center left because they're not going left left they're only going center left yeah uh but we do you know we hope for change in that but actually we have all these other agencies that are still the same people mm. and so the bureaucracies themselves are not changing and so they're not advocating for that knowledge that you're talking about Mm. in terms of uh, knowledge that victims or survivors hold and know um, in terms of change and, and prevention and intervention but also in structural change that mm. can be done mm. um, but I do think that we have a lot of the answers actually available to us but we don't have we've never had governments that are really willing to Listen. to do the change yeah yeah. we can be hopeful I guess yeah, I I have hope, and part of the reason I have hope, uh, I mean, it's been such a joy to have you in the studio with us today. So thanks for coming in, and I'm reminded of something that um, that you had said about um, in another interview about academics serving as the conscience and the critics of mm. society, um, and it's something we've talked about on this show as well, and and how that's under threat in a neoliberal business model. Um, but I think. You, you know, the way that you are holding that and speaking, um, the observations that you have and the criticisms that you have and being quite loud and, and bold about it, I think, for me, is a source of hope. Mm. Um, and I'm seeing, you know, uh, people around who are willing to take those risks and do that work. And, um, you know, the, one of the beautiful things is that there is, it seems, a swell of people willing to rise up mm. and join in and mm. say, yeah, speak it. Like finally, somebody's yeah. somebody's telling the truth. Um, so there is hope. I I think some on my better days. I think. <laughs> well, you know, I try and have hope. I've got you know four grandchildren and one on the way, mm. and so you know a lot of what I do is really about trying to make a world a future world uh, that is their future world. You know, a better world for them to be in. And so, um, you know, it's around, it is around being visionary and, and doing what we do because we know it'll make a difference and it will make a better world, I think. And mm -hmm. So it's really about what kind of transformation do we want to see and what is our role and our contribution to that transformation? So mm -hmm. what do we do? And the short life that we have here, mm -hmm. which is pretty short, mm -hmm. um, <coughs> And, and what do we pass on to the next generation? Not just our own children, but everyone's children. What do we pass on to the next generations, you know, for them to have a vision for a future, you know, that goes beyond what we know now? And you know, I think in, in this country, one of the things that people really, I don't think, uh, well, people I think fail to see is that, you know, Te Tiriti and Waitangi, you know, when that treaty was signed, that was a visionary document. Mm. There was a document around a vision for a future where we could live together. 
And, you know, so, uh, you know, often we get a lot of the kind of Bob Jones and other kind of, you know, discourse around uh, that the treaty shouldn't count and there's too much, you know, given to it and too much acknowledgement of it. But actually, until that treaty is fully recognised and honoured and the vision of an ability to live together is realised in the way that all of our ancestors envisaged it to be, uh, that we as as because we are ancestors now as we walk this land and so we're the embodiment of their you know of the, what they were wanting to have and so part of our role now is really contributing to for me I want a future where my great grandchildren are able to live in this country in the kind of honouring partnership that my great great grandparents had for us, that they envisaged for us hmm. and so inside that I think there's a lot of uh, potential and a lot of vision and you know I want them to have a good life yeah I want all children to have a good life on yeah. this country because you know this is an amazing place to be yeah uh, but in order to get that we, we do need to lay a lot of challenge at the moment and hmm. uh, you know and and intervene and family violence and you know all of the phobias that are currently seem to you, you know becoming more well they're more articulate I think because I think like the kind of Trump America and the Brexit and those things are enabling really right-wing discourse to come to the fore mm. very damaging and destructive ways of thinking and talking mm. and I do actually see that as a minority I don't think that is a majority in this country uh, and so I think until, you know, we need to really directly deal to those things um, and hope for a future that is going to be, um, you know, as I said, one that is honouring. And I mean, I guess I come back to what Moana Jackson has always said around treaty relationships. And, you know, he's always said treaties are made, and um, treaties are not made to be settled. Treaty, treaties are made to be honoured. Mm. Mm. And we all have a role in being honourable. Mm. Well, well it was a much more hopeful note to end with than what we started with today. It so was thank you. Indeed. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming in. No, thank you for having me.